Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink Women for Peace, who examines deepening U.S. involvement in clashes across the Middle East, inextricably linked with Israel's brutal war in Gaza. Roysheta Ozain of the Vessel Project in southwestern Louisiana, who supports President Biden's pause on approving new LNG export terminals, but asserts it won't address frontline communities' environmental health problems. And Justin Akers Chacon, professor of U.S. history and Chicano studies at San Diego City College, who talks about Republican and far-right anti-immigrant activists provoking a national emergency at the U.S. southern border. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. A month after the Hamas terrorist attack on Israel, former Pegasus executive Shalev Julio, who is starting up a new cybersecurity company, stood on the border of the Gaza Strip, speaking into a webcam with two associates. Julio, who resigned from the NSO group, maker of Pegasus spyware, is an active Israeli military reservist. While in the middle of Israel's brutal war in Gaza, he was making a YouTube video to promote his new company, Dream Security. Julio used the video in the war setting to boost his new cybersecurity company, which had raised $33 million in venture capital funding. According to The Intercept, the new company is staffed by veterans from the NSO group and bankrolled by right-wing financiers. Instead of spyware, the new firm will focus on defensive cybersecurity for energy infrastructure projects. Lawyers for Dream Security deny there is any official connection between the new company and the NSO group, which was widely condemned because their spyware was used by authoritarian governments to target human rights activists and journalists. Dream Security is supported by right-wing ideologues in Israel and Europe. The company's co-founder, former right-wing Austrian chancellor Sebastian Kurtz, now a tech investor, has ties to extremist conservative American financier Peter Thiel. Kurtz also has close ties to Hungary's authoritarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban and Donald Trump's son-in-law Jared Kushner. The legal counsel with the digital rights advocacy group Access Now observed it seems like Dream Security is finding a new way to whitewash NSO's image and past record. Presidential elections in Mexico and the United States coincide every 12 years. The last time this happened, Barack Obama, who was campaigning for re-election in 2012, never mentioned Mexico in the debates. But The Economist observes that things will be different for Joe Biden in his anticipated rematch with Donald Trump this year. Border issues and Trump's relentless bashing of immigrants will likely be major Republican talking points in this year's presidential campaign. Claudia Scheinbaum, a protege of Mexico's popular left-of-center incumbent president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, is the front-runner to win the June election. 
Mexico will be at the center of several of the most divisive issues, including record levels of immigrant border crossings, the rising volume of the deadly synthetic opioid fentanyl being intercepted at the U.S. southern border, and Washington's increasing reliance on Mexico to host supply chains which used to pass through China. Trump has threatened to unleash the largest domestic deportation operation in American history if he wins. That would upend the lives of many members of the Mexican diaspora by returning them to a country in which they have not set foot in years or decades. Mexico's new president will take office one month before America's November election and could change the tone over the Biden-Trump campaign, especially over the contentious issue of immigration. Walmart, America's largest retail store, has long been a magnet for fraud on a mass scale via scammers' use of gift cards and electronic money transfers. A ProPublica investigation found that for the last 10 years, Walmart has resisted tougher enforcement while breaking promises to regulators and skimping unemployee training. According to filings by the Federal Trade Commission and court cases analyzed by ProPublica, more than $1 billion in fraud losses were routed through the company's financial systems between 2013 and 2022. Walmart was reluctant to crack down since it makes money on each gift card issued and cashed in. Walmart also receives a commission each time a person sends a money transfer and a commission when it is received. In 2022, the Federal Trade Commission sued Walmart for turning a blind eye as criminals took advantage of its money transfer services. In upholding the complaint, a federal judge stated Walmart knew its services were being used by fraudsters. The company was warned that in certain stores, between 25 and 75 percent of money transfers were fraudulent. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. As Israel continues to prosecute its brutal war in Gaza, a wider conflict is spreading across the Middle East. Since the October 7th Hamas terrorist attack against Israel that triggered Israel's war in Gaza, the U.S. military has retaliated against dozens of attacks on U.S. bases in the region by Iran-aligned militia groups in Iraq and Syria. U.S. and U.K. forces have also targeted Houthi rebels in Yemen, who've launched attacks on commercial ships linked with Israel in the Red Sea that they say is in solidarity with Palestinians under attack in Gaza. But the scale of U.S. airstrikes dramatically increased after three American soldiers were killed and dozens more were injured in a January 28th drone attack on their base in Jordan. Since then, President Biden has authorized hundreds of retaliatory airstrikes on Iran-supported militia groups in Iraq and Syria, but maintains that the U.S. does not seek a war with Iran. Meanwhile, U.S., Israeli, Hamas, Egyptian, and Qatari negotiators are working to achieve an agreement on a 40-day truce in Gaza that would pause the fighting, arrange for humanitarian aid to reach the 2.3 million Palestinian residents of Gaza, and free remaining Israeli hostages held by Hamas in exchange for the release of Palestinians imprisoned in Israel. 
Your reporter spoke with Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink Women for Peace, who examines deepening U.S. involvement in clashes across the Middle East linked with Israel's war in Gaza that calls out for an immediate ceasefire to stop the killing and reduce escalating tensions that could provoke a wider Middle East war. The U.S. is involved in a widening war and doing everything that you can imagine uh, to make it even worse, whether it's the support of Israel as it attacks neighboring countries, including the capitals uh, for neighboring countries, or it's the direct involvement now that we've seen in retaliation for the killing of those three soldiers. So uh, this is a very, very catastrophic and dangerous situation where we see only the tough guy stand from the administration. Well, you know, you hit us and blaming it all on Iran when these militia groups, while they might be have ties to Iran and sympathy from Iran and maybe get some of their weapons, they are autonomous groups. Uh, the Yemenis, the Houthis, don't take their orders from Iran. Uh, the Iraqi militias, the Syrian government, I mean, these all have uh, autonomy and agency. And both the U.S. and Israel think of them in terms of all Iran-backed. And the, the Israeli government would like nothing better than to see direct U.S. attacks on Iran, which would be catastrophic. And members of the U.S. Pentagon know that, which is why they have tried not to strike Iran directly. Medea, what do we know about Joe Biden's position on a ceasefire? There are current negotiations involving Israel, Hamas, Qatar, Egypt, and the United States. Is there any hope that we will see a ceasefire in Gaza that could help tamp down the tensions and the tit-for-tat attacks that we see across borders all across the Middle East now that has uh, resulted in many deaths as well as uh, the threat of a wider, more deadly regional war? Well, yes, I think the Biden administration is under a lot of pressure from uh, many of its allies overseas to call for a ceasefire. We see overwhelming support for a ceasefire at the United Nations. We see the South Africa court case. We see the protests that are happening inside the government, whether it's directly in the Biden's National Security Council or people resigning from the State Department or the staff writing letters that are saying how alarmed they are about U.S. policy. And we see that in the House and the Senate, as I've been going every day to those offices, and you see distraught staff who do not want to stand behind the position that their bosses have. Yet Biden could stop this immediately if he said to Netanyahu, we're not going to support this anymore. Zero funds coming into you. Uh, we're not going to give you the kind of uh, military support that we've been giving. And instead, the Biden administration is talking about wanting a ceasefire, uh, but continuing to call for more money to Israel. And even, and we saw twice uh, in the past months, going around Congress to send more weapons. So this is a really untenable situation. I do want your listeners to know, Scott, that there's also been an encampment outside the home of Secretary of State Anthony Blinken that's been going on for 11 days now. And it's quite remarkable. At times, you get up to 100 people out there. 
sleeping outside, uh, yelling until we're hoarse every single day, bloody Blinken, Secretary of Genocide. Uh, These things have an impact. Uh, All the interruptions you hear of Biden himself, of his administration, Uh, just a couple of days ago, the head of AID, Samantha Power, interrupted at a talk she gave. I mean, this is commonplace now. And members of Congress who can't go anywhere and give a talk without having it being interrupted. And then the polls. We have to understand that the vast majority of the American people want a ceasefire. In fact, there was the CNN poll that said 66 percent of Americans and 80 percent of Democrats. But there's a more recent poll that came out that showed an astounding 90 percent of Democrats wanting a ceasefire. So the fact that the Biden administration and both parties in Congress are deaf and blind to the suffering of the people in Gaza and to the desires of the American people uh, and to the threat of this spreading throughout the region, uh, one has to wonder, is it all about APAC money? Is it money from the military-industrial complex? Is it just a long-time support of Israel that they can't seem to shake off? It's very hard to understand why they are taking the positions they're taking. That was Medea Benjamin co-founder of Code Pink Women for Peace. Find a link to her article, co-written with Nicholas Davies, titled Biden Must Choose Between a Ceasefire in Gaza and a Regional War, and related commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In a historic but maybe a temporary win for the climate movement and for communities most impacted by fossil fuel infrastructure, The Biden administration last week temporarily paused decisions on approving new liquefied natural gas, or LNG, export terminals in the U.S. In recent years, frontline communities and activists across the country have come together to oppose any expansion of what they believe is the most harmful form of fuel on the planet from a climate perspective. LNG export requires methane gas to be supercooled into a liquid for transport on ships around the world, then turned back into a gas for consumption. Roy Shetta Ozain is the founder and CEO of the Vessel Project in southwestern Louisiana, a grassroots mutual aid, disaster relief, and environmental justice organization that was founded in the wake of several federally declared disasters. Her group organized opposition to the proposed $10 billion CP2 LNG terminal in Cameron Parish, Louisiana, which would have added to the environmental health hazards for her community. Between the Lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Ozane about how and why she took up the fight and how her community won by making alliances with other LNG opponents. Just fighting an LNG terminal or stopping a particular project doesn't really help the community. But if we can help the community um, with their emergency needs, help them to develop programs and help them to develop, um, to receive resources in the community, that helps the community become more sustainable. And that's what the mission of the Vessel Project is. My mission has never been to fight one particular thing. There's so many things at this intersection of social justice, climate justice, racial justice. And my my fight has always been for the community, for the individual people who live here, to make sure that they have all the things that they need to survive and thrive. You said stopping an LNG terminal doesn't necessarily help the community. 
doesn't it help the community if there's less, I mean, because the pollution is so tremendous and also because of the climate impacts, would you say? It helps the community in that way. But if that project has never been to that community and we only stop this proposed perpetual thing, but we don't look at everything else that's impacting that community, it's just stopped one thing. It does not stop something else from coming to that same community. Because what we've realized is that as long as the community is in the state that it's in, something else is going to make its case to come for that community. We know that the other side, especially the Republicans, like to say that these communities are in a position to need economic development or workforce development. And that's how they, you know, propose these projects in those type of communities because they feel like, well, they need something there to make this community better. But we're showcasing that the projects that are already here are not helping the community at all. I mean, we're talking about communities that are surrounded by billion dollar industries, but are still have the highest unemployment rate, the lowest minimum wage, people still struggling to get by. So again, stopping one facility, when you look at it in the grand scheme of things and the climate as a whole, yes, it prevents that extra pollution. It stops that community from being in danger from that thing that never came. It does not change the condition of the community. There have been a lot of different streams of opposition to LNGs, including that big rally in September in New York City. There's been people coming up from the Gulf to go to Federal Energy Regulatory Commission meetings to try to persuade that agency not to permit this stuff. And then this new group for elders called Third Act actually was going to be in D.C. with, I think, 300 elders committing to risking arrest uh, at the Department of Energy to try to block this. Do you think it was that kind of all-hands-on-deck activity by different populations that sort of moved the needle? I have to say, and I continue to say, that it took each and every one of us to get to this point. Um, there have been people who have been fighting and pushing back against the poisoning of Black, Indigenous, people of color communities for many years. You know, we can go back to coal and, you know, the railroads and highways coming through communities and Dr. Bullard has a, a book that he's written and he talks about being the wrong complexion for protection. So many years have gone into this, but what was missing from the fight for so many years were real frontline stories, people impacted, able to show in real time their impacts. That's thanks to the internet and to social media, the fact that we were able to get these stories across the world, across the globe. We were able to connect with people, like I said, in Europe and in Japan. We were able to go to Dubai and attend COP28 and go to Egypt and attend COP27 and go to New York and speak at New York Climate Week, constantly showing videos and footage of our communities and what we live with and deal with every day. When I arranged a tour of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission here in my community, they were in shock. They were in tears to see that there were real men, women, and children who were living like this, hearing the stories of people with cancer and children playing in softball fields with a big petrochemical facility right across the street. In fact, the softball field is entitled 
the industrial girls softball complex. Now think about our young girls playing right across the street from industry and relate that directly to the number of premature births and the number of cervical cancer and breast cancer rates that have gone up. This is our children have no choice but to be impacted by these things because it's right there, not only in their front yards, but across the street from their schools, where they play, where they eat. That was Roychetta Ozane, founder and CEO of The Vessel Project in southwestern Louisiana. Learn more about her group and campaigns targeting liquefied natural gas exports by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. A confluence of events on the U.S. southern border, in Texas, Congress, and in the U.S. Supreme Court, has shown a spotlight on the nation's broken immigration system. In this presidential election year, arrests of migrants crossing the border from Mexico, seeking asylum status in the U.S., reached an all-time high in December. Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who, like Donald Trump and many other Republicans, have spent years demonizing immigrants, surrounded a crossing point for asylum seekers on the Rio Grande River, with miles of razor wire blocking access to federal Border Patrol officers to assist injured people. Dozens of migrants have drowned in the river over the past year. Responding to a lawsuit filed by the Biden administration, the U.S. Supreme Court recently issued a ruling that upheld federal jurisdiction on enforcement of immigration law. As Governor Abbott vowed to defy the Supreme Court ruling, Using language similar to the Civil War-era Confederate Declaration of Secession, Donald Trump called for GOP governors to deploy their state guards to Texas to prevent the entry of what he called illegals. At the same time, anti-immigrant activists formed a convoy they called the Army of God that recently converged on the border to rally against what they say is a migrant invasion. Meanwhile, as Congress was working to pass a draconian bipartisan immigration reform bill, Trump urged Republicans to reject it, concerned that any solutions offered on the so-called border crisis would deprive him of a potent issue in his re-election campaign. Your reporter spoke with Justin Akers Chacon, professor of U.S. History and Chicano Studies at San Diego City College, who talks about the Republican and far-right anti-immigrant activists trying to provoke a national emergency at the U.S. southern border. First of all, it's important to understand that this is a manufactured crisis. What I mean by that is much of the discourse that's coming out of, especially the far-right governors, um, you know, starting with Abbott in Texas and in, you know, different parts of the country, um, and also kind of like reflected in the media narrative is that, you know, this is a crisis the reality is, is that it's, it's sort of being generated as a crisis by the Texas state government uh, attempting to overstep, you know, the federal government and creating its own reinforced uh, barrier and a deadly barrier, right, using different types of barriers such as concertina wire and these kind of uh, floating buoys that have razor sharp wire, you know, these very deadly types of uh, barriers that are being placed in a common crossing point in South Texas. While it's true there has been an increase in, in more people trying to seek refuge in the United States, 
that can be understood as the result of policies that are driving people from their homelands, many of, many of which are actually policies that you know, the U.S. government has a hand in. There are people trying to get refuge in the United States, and there is an increase, but it's not a crisis. The United States can easily handle uh, processing people you know, who come to the border as refugees, could easily afford you know, to resettle and help people go through the process of going from asylum seekers to, you know, to refugees and getting resettled. It can handle all of these things, um, and it has. Um, but we're in an election year, and the far right, specifically those uh, aligned with Trump and a far-right anti-immigrant policy agenda, want to create this crisis as a way to demonstrate that they are going to make this their the defining issue of the election. And, and they've succeeded in that, in that capacity. They've, they've pushed uh, the Biden administration and the Democrats as a whole farther to the right to the point where uh, there's not a whole lot of difference in terms of what they're arguing in terms of how to respond to, to refugees coming to the United States. But that also has emboldened the far right to basically want to go even further. Right. Trump and the Republican Party have long demonized immigrants as dangerous murderers and rapists. They characterize the numbers of uh, migrants seeking uh, asylum in the United States as an invasion, poisoning the blood of our nation, quoting Adolf Hitler. Many people in the United States believe in this xenophobic and hateful message. What's the best way to counter it? Well, it's important to understand that it's also not just coming from the right. It's, it's coming now from the Biden administration and the Democrats who are complicit in accepting this narrative because they're not actually challenging it. They're actually trying to catch up to it. But refugees and undocumented people who come to our border, you won't hear any actual reference to what they're doing because they're coming to get refuge. Many of them end up working starting lives here, building families. They're the least likely to commit crimes. They, they don't do the, any of the negative things that the far right um, claims that they do, and, they, and they, they can't show any evidence to support their absurd claims. And so this is based on, this is like a kind of a, a, an emotional propagandistic plea to people, but the, the evidence bears out that actually refugees and immigrants contribute to our country and play a beneficial role. But if they have access to citizenship if they if they come into the workforce and they and they you know they have everything that they need in terms of their rights and their benefits then they end up uh, you know becoming productive members of society but the you know, the capitalist class right um, really wants to keep people who are refugees and undocumented under in conditions of um, oppression and they want to keep them you know non-citizens and they want to keep them vulnerable so we need the US economy needs the labor they just don't want laborers with rights and so for that for that reason they have to generate this whole narrative of criminality and uh, threat and invasion. But it's not true. It's simply, it's simply not true. That was Justin Akers Chacon, professor of U.S. history and Chicano studies at San Diego City College. Find a link to his recent article titled, Why the True Immigration Crisis Will Always Be Racism, and related commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. 
If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WERU in Blue Hill, Maine, KTWH in Two Harbors, Minnesota, KBCS in Bellevue, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. <laughs>